Hey everybody, this is Alex and welcome back to another episode of The Oregon Bridge. Research has always been really important to me as a way to have a conversation about shared truth. And research was not a shared truth anymore. And so I see OVBC and the work that we're doing is a way to find that shared truth again, because if people don't agree that scientific research and data is the truth, then what they believe really becomes the truth for Oregon. Hey everyone, thanks again for tuning in. Today we're really excited to bring you Amory Vogel, who is the Associate Executive Director of the Oregon Values and Belief Center. And Amory might be new to you, but the Oregon Values and Belief Center shouldn't be if you've been listening to the pod or reading the Oregon way and then also reading Liftoff because we cite their polls on a weekly basis and they range from a number of different issues from things like climate change, the Black Lives Matter movement to crime and policing, and they're doing some really interesting work. And I think that this episode is particularly interesting and in just that there's no other organization that's actually doing public polls that can be accessed by everyday citizens, which is kind of crazy if you think about it. And then two, you also should listen to this out for in this episode, we talk about some really interesting issues related to what's wrong with polling. And if you're like me or any other political nerds, there's a lot to have been wrong in the polling industry since 2016. So we'll just get right into it. And we hope that y'all enjoy the episode. If your platform allows, please do remember to give us five stars and also write us a review. Ben and I love reading the reviews. We love hearing what you think about the episodes and we love any sort of feedback or in terms of guest suggestions or anything like that. And you can also check us out on YouTube. If you just type in Bridge Podcast into the search bar on YouTube, you'll find us and our editor, Buddy, who just listened to last week is doing some absolutely fantastic work on the video front too. So again, hope you enjoy the episode and we'll dive right in. Welcome to the podcast, Amory Vogel from the Oregon Values and Belief Center. Amory, how are you doing today? Great. Thank you. I'm excited to be here with you guys. Very cool. So we want to talk all about OVBC and how you came to exist and what you do and what makes you different from other groups. But first, can you give us a little bit of an overview of how your title, I believe, is Associate Executive Director. So how did you arrive into that position? What's your personal background? I actually was born in North Bend, Oregon, which is the city of North Bend, not the northern part of the city of Bend. (laughs) It's rural Oregon coast, right? Very different. Yes. Yeah. And then we moved to the Portland suburbs uh, right before I started school. I have friends and family all over the state and have traveled around the state a lot. And I've always been really interested in why people think and feel the way that they do. And a, a great place to start for understanding that is understanding where they come from. So when I do travel around the state, like I get a lot of information about how people think looking around their communities. So for example, I was out in Christmas Valley this past summer and, you know, there's amazing scenery out there. There are pronghorns running through the fields and you can see why these people don't want to move to Idaho, for example. Right. So um, I actually ended up studying psychology and social work in college, which is not polling or opinion research, but it ties into what I'm interested in. And Research has always been really important to me as a way to have a conversation about shared truth. And I was having these conversations with people that believed things, maybe even not different from me, but different from other people. And research was not a shared truth anymore. 
And so I see OVBC and the work that we're doing is a way to find that shared truth again, because if people don't agree that scientific research and data is the truth, then what they believe really becomes the truth for Oregon. So we have to understand what that is so that we can move forward. I just kind of stumbled upon OVBC. They were looking for administrative help and I started doing some administrative work for them, but because I believe in the work and I just dove right in and now I'm associate executive director, which basically means I do a little bit of a lot of different things. <laughs> so you've had a meteoric rise within Oregon Values and Belief Center. <laughs> yeah. Yes. And and our organization has had sort of a meteoric rise. I mean, Adam Davis, our executive director, has been around doing Oregon Values and Beliefs research for over 30 years, but we haven't been an organization and incorporated until 2019. So it's not just my meteoric rise, it's our whole organization. <laughs> yeah, no, and it's great to hear about the work that you are doing because as Ben had just informed me, Oregon Values and Belief Center is the only organization in Oregon that's giving access to public polling, uh, not just to candidates who might want it, but also state officials, citizens, activists, and, and all of that good stuff. Well, one, I'm just kind of curious of at least, you know, coming from sort of political world, like there's tons of different organizations that openly give polling and things like that. Uh, why? I mean, it's 2020, it seems kind of surprising. Why was no organization in Oregon before giving access to public polls? Like, is it is it just a monetary thing? Is it really just there's paid clients who want access to this information? Like, clearly, you and Adam saw a gap in the marketing, you capitalized on it. But I'm just kind of curious of like, why wasn't that available in the first place? It's largely a monetary thing. It's expensive to do opinion polling. And so giving that away for free to people and organizations is not really uh, rewarded in our capitalist markets. And, you know, a lot of polling that's done, especially political polling or market research to sell products, they have the opportunity to ask questions in a way that elicits a specific answer or to release data in a way that supports a specific answer or cause or candidate. And so we want to make it publicly available. So it's a fair fight. You know, one side can hold up the research and say, oh, it says this, but the other side can say, yeah, but it also says this or, okay, but you're leaving out this other part that contradicts the message that you're saying. So- that's what gotcha. I imagine. Yeah, one of, one of my favorite polls ever, which I cannot believe any journalist published this, but they did publish this in multiple major publications was it was something like one third or one fourth of Americans take showers in their pools. And this was like across major media publications. I was like, <laughs> this seems ridiculous because not that many people have pools in the first place. And one journalist made this very long thread on Twitter, which was like, <laughs> Obviously, this was bogus, so I dove into this, and it was like a fake online poll paid for by the Chlorine Association, which like <laughs> lobbies for chlorine makers, <laughs> to put this online survey about people showering in their pools. So I was like, ah, the, the polling industry seems to have... <laughs> have a lot going for it so <laughs> well be before you dive into the next fo the follow-up Titus what I wanted to mention that I like what I appreciate I think so much about OVBC is a lot of the public polling that we get access to as citizens or consumers it's from someone who wants to make you think something right so I'll use an example that I agree with 
So in the last liftoff newsletter, we um, showed polling from Data for Progress, which is a national progressive organization with an explicit purpose of helping progressive causes and progressive candidates, mostly which I agree with, right? Well, they came out with this polling on Build Back Better that says like, Build Back Better, Biden's agenda has a 54% net approval. So it's like approval rating in the 80s or 90s, which is awesome. And I do think they, that the, the agenda has a huge approval rating. But like, I also think that a Republican group could slightly amend the questions and the framing and have it come back with like, oh my God, this is a deeply unpopular proposal. And well, you also have to look at who they asked. I mean, right. that's yep. just as important as how they asked the question. Which like, it seems to me you all, you don't care what the data says. You're ambivalent about, you're neutral about what the results of the survey are. You're just trying to get an accurate sample of what the state believes. Exactly. And we're doing this on a monthly basis too. So especially right now when we have so many things changing with COVID and the economy and wildfires and climate change and everything that's going on, having this monthly data coming in that can help organizations with a quick turnaround it's something that Oregon didn't have available to it. A lot of times, what even when you pay for an opinion poll, you don't get that research for months mm -hmm. after. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. And can you walk us through a little bit about the methodology that Oregon Values and Belief Centers uses compared to maybe traditional polling firms? From my understanding, you guys have a very large panel. For some reason, I think it's in the tens of thousands, or maybe Adam had told us he wants to get it into the tens <laughs> of thousands, but. One, can you just walk us through that methodology? And then also, how is that different than what other groups are currently doing, whether they're political or nonprofit, university or whatever, when, when they do their polling? Like, what's kind of the difference between those two? This was actually a, a really big part of why Adam started the Oregon Values and Beliefs Center, was because a lot of opinion polling is done based on likely voters and also it's representative of the state with proportional sampling that leaves some people out. So I'll go into both of those. Our research is general population rather than likely voters. Likely voters are usually uh, often more wealthy, older, wider, usually from more metropolitan areas. And so you get a, a different answer than you would get if you're asking everyone in the state. The other part is the proportional issue. So the voices of the metro areas kind of drown out parts of rural Oregon and also as well, like the white populations drown out the voices of minority populations. So they're not well represented in opinion research generally. And then that also means that rural organizations don't have good research to inform the work that they're doing because they only know what like, the statewide example is. And most of those people live in metropolitan areas, not where they're actually working. So the Oregon Values and Belief Center, we do statewide polling, but we also have what's called stratified sampling. So we're trying to get a large enough sample to give valid and statistically reliable research for smaller areas of the state. So right now we have it separated out into the Portland metro area, the Wyoming Valley, and the rest of the state. And then we also look at urban, suburban, rural changing to suburban, and rural areas and have comparisons of those opinions and values and beliefs. We would like to eventually get to having tens of thousands of panelists in our panel we're not quite there yet. We have over 3,200 right now, and 
anybody in Oregon can join and take the monthly surveys and you get rewarded for participating because that's also important to make sure that we have a representative sample because people who have the spare time to voluntarily participate in opinion research, those are going to be a different population. So we have identified eight regions that we'd like to have stratified sampling for, and we're working really hard to build our panel so that we can give good results in those eight regions. We're very, very close to being able to do that, but it's a constant battle to get enough sample, especially in harder to reach populations. I mean, they are harder to reach populations. So we're going above and beyond to try and get the voices of people that live in those areas heard and represented. That's awesome. I have two follow-ups on that. The first is about, and I realize I probably should have asked this before, what makes other polls biased is who's paying for them. So can you explain to us a little bit about how are you funded and how do you ensure there's a sort of firewall between the influence of what your funders might want versus the questions you're asking and framing and who you're asking the questions to, et cetera? Yeah. So we are funded by foundations and private donors but we have a set of donor funder principles. Those are also on our website in our about us section. So anybody who wants to read through them can, but any money that is given to us, it's with the understanding that they will not be allowed to influence questionnaire development or results reporting, because it's really important to us that we remain independent and nonpartisan because we're here for Oregonians. We're not here for a specific cause. So that, so that leads to my next point, which is on the other side of it, when you've got this valuable research, we at the, at the liftoff on the Oregon way, appreciate you've sent us some amazing data and visuals that we send out to our readers. I also know there's several other publications who use your data in their reporting and project it out. How, you know, who is getting this data on the back end? And I'm, you know, and as a sub question to that, I'm also wondering, like, do you have a relationship with state leaders or the state government who could use this in as they're making like high level policy decisions or so once the data is done, what what happens, who gets it? So right now, once the data is done, we well, we develop sort of highlights to make it more accessible. I mean, people aren't going to look at it and read it if it's just a whole bunch of spreadsheets. They are not very fun, I will tell you, (laughs) especially not being a researcher. By nature, they're not fun. So we have highlights on our blog from our research that we put out once it's available each month. We also provide our research to news organizations. There's this service called Newswire Flash Alert, and it sends alerts into newsrooms across the state. Uh, You may have seen like, um, you can sign up to get emergency alerts for schools or public agencies it's connected to that service. So anybody, any newsroom in Oregon can access it and publish it. So we just put it out there and we get contacted and we're happy to talk to anybody, especially to talk through the research because we want people to be able to use this and understand it. Right now, we don't have relationships with state policymakers. They're welcome to access our research just like everybody else. It's public and they're welcome to contact us and ask us questions. We're certainly not going to say, you know, like give them insider info because there isn't any. (laughs) It's It's already public. (laughs) So down the road, eventually, aspirationally, we'd love to have somebody that their job specifically is to 
bring our data to policymakers and work with them specifically and like testify in front of the Senate and the House about our research when it's relevant. But right now we're we're still pretty small. We're working really hard. It's a one day. (laughs) (laughs) Very good. Uh, Great. So we want to transition just a little bit to talking sort of about the polling industry in general, and then also some of the, I would say, you guys might not consider them controversial polls, but I think some people in political circles at least consider the results to be controversials for beliefs that they normally hold. But before we get into that, I think that many people, not just who listen to this podcast, but in general, but think that the, the polling industry has kind of a bad name right now. They frankly haven't done that great of a job from 2016 to 2020, and actually, well, and, and to today. And two examples that I would talk are, one, I remember seeing a poll that showed that Donald Trump was down by almost 20 points in Florida in 2020. And actually, the head of the Democratic Super PAC tweeted that the poll was ridiculous, too, when he had seen it. And of course, Trump ended up winning Florida by a pretty substantial margin. We also just saw the California recall polls, which show that Gavin Newsom was at you know serious turn and potentially being recalled and losing the governorship. And of course, I don't remember the exact results on the top of my head, but I believe he won by like more than 20 points or something pretty close to that. Obviously, polls were also dramatically wrong when it came to that circumstance. I don't want you to comment on the specific examples, but maybe just kind of the broader theme, like what's going on with polling right now? Like has polling always been this dramatically off? Do you think that it's, you know, literally 2016 has sort of changed the game and we need to rethink polling methodology? What's going on with the polling industry and why are things changing? Well, there's been a lot of change, not just in the polling industry, but that has impacted the polling industry over the last 10 years. I mean, I don't know about you guys, but I know a lot of people that just don't answer their phones anymore. And that used to be the main way that they would do polling is they would call people on their landlines because people answered their phones. So that's become almost not even an option anymore. There are issues with how you elicit participation, whether it's online or mail, or there are text polls. I'm sure that you guys have seen, I get asked by Twitter to take surveys about ads all the time. And it's just fills up your timeline. It's everywhere, but it's because it's really hard to get people to participate anymore. So that's, I mean, that's part of why we have our reward system. What a lot of polling is doing now is moving towards these really big panel companies that polling or research organizations basically contract with these panel companies and they send their questionnaire and the panel company sends it out to their participants and they'll have quotas for you know this many people that are 18 to 29 and this many people that are in this income bracket and the panel company has a contract to fill those quotas the reason that we don't contract with a panel company is because if you go that route the panel company does not allow you to contact the participants because that's their asset. So we are building Oregon's panel because we want to be able to talk to these people. Right now we're just doing online surveys, but very soon we'll be starting to do more focus groups. And that's not an option if you're contracting through a panel company. And then, I mean, with 
polling issues that have been happening. It's partly a participation issue. It's partly that these numbers are often based on who they think will be voting. Right. And mm-hmm. and that is changing in our country. And so that impacts the results. If you take out a portion because you don't think that those people are going to show up at the polls and then they do show up, then that completely changes your election results. Yeah. And that, that's interesting. And I know that, and you mentioned a little bit before, but basically your all's perspective is that polls typically <laughs> underrepresent both people of color and then also rural voters. Mm-hmm. Is that, do you think that those are some of the same issues which are plaguing like some election results like the two that I had just mentioned? That, and then also young people are often underrepresented. Lower income people are often underrepresented. And I don't know the numbers about who's showing up for voting. That's sorry, that's your guys' job. <laughs> um, but I would guess that more young people are showing up to vote than had previously, mm-hmm. at least for a little while. So. so so you think really that the issue is is that polling companies or campaigns or whoever is sort of releasing what again, what I would say are pretty bad results. It's really just the industry has basically had a pivot or had a shift and they just mm-hmm. haven't, they haven't adopted to these new changes quick enough. So they're just kind of using old methodologies that again, don't maybe work for what's happening today. Not only just that they're using old methodologies, but that there aren't a whole lot of good options for new methodologies. So, you know, they're trying lots of different things, but there's just not a whole lot of success generally. I think we're really lucky at OVBC in that we get participation because a lot of people in Oregon are dissatisfied with the way things are going. Even if it's, I mean, maybe not necessarily policy-wise, but just like the civic climate in our state and people Mm -hmm. don't want it to keep going like this. And a lot of people, especially in rural areas and in BIPOC communities, and younger people feel like they're not being heard. Mm -hmm. And so this is an opportunity for them to have a voice. That is very much aligned with, I think, how both Alex and I view the state of things. I know we keep asking about some of the the wonky stuff. So I got one more question there, and then we'll dive into some of the actual research you've conducted. So as someone who works for OVBC and obviously understands public opinion polling better than nearly everyone else in this state, When well, you, I wouldn't go that far. <laughs> <laughs> you could say, you could argue there's a low bar there potentially, but <laughs> I am curious. So if you get if you see a poll, for example, in the governor's race, no, I mean obviously you'll want to you'll you'd want to know like what was the methodology, who did they talk to, etc. But just in general, do you trust polling that you see coming from you know not the campaigns but from like a newspaper, or do you think we should as consumers treat those with some pretty deep skepticism because of the reasons that you and Alex just discussed? Well, so first of all, I look at the sample size because that's, that matters. I mean, technically you can have a representative sample that is fairly small, like 600 people is a pretty representative sample for Oregon, but that's not that many people. Right. And the more people that you have, generally, the more likely your results are to be accurate. There is sort of a bell curve where there's diminishing returns on that. And then I also look closely at who performed the poll. So there are a lot of neutral polling companies. There are also a lot of very politically skewed polling companies. I mean, if it's the governor's office, for example, did the governor's office or the governor's campaign pay for that poll? 
So it, I mean, it depends on those things. It depends on where they asked people. And in Oregon, it is really tricky because of the issues that we're having with metropolitan area versus other parts of the state. Mm -hmm. So. No, that's, that's, that's super helpful. Um, Okay. So the first piece of actual research I want to talk about is the one that I found most interesting. And this, so you sent us like a bunch of new research that came out and you're like, let me know if you want graphics for any of this. And the one that I wanted a graphic for Mm -hmm. is so basically you asked people about whether or not they think Oregon will be able to address quote soon enough, solve soon enough, these three crises. And so one was climate change. One was increasing forest fires and one was increasing homelessness and overwhelmingly by like, not, a, not even, not even really close. Most people said either there's a very small chance or not a chance at all that Oregon would be able to solve those problems soon enough in each of these, like it's an average of like five, eight and five who said that we certainly will be able to solve it. So that has, I've been thinking about that since it came out because I think it, it underscores what you, I think just referenced a little bit. I do think there's a deep sense of pessimism in Oregon about our civic culture and about our ability to solve big problems. And I do think that's a departure also. Like we used to be a place where Oregon could do big things and we could innovate and do things first. And like, we believed in our government's ability to, to organize and get things done. I'm curious what you make of that. If there's other things in your research that might indicate some of the reasons for this decline, but when you see data like that, that just sort of underscores a sense of pessimism, what do you make of it? I think that the feeling in Oregon that people have that we can't work together, which, I mean, I'm not saying that we can't work together. I'm saying people feel like we can't work together And I think that that is a huge factor in why people feel so pessimistic about this, about all three of those issues. I mean, people across the board agree that homelessness is the biggest issue that they want something done about. But we, I mean, everything that we're doing to try to deal with it is moving so slowly and the problem just keeps getting worse. And this is a problem that we've been talking about for quite some time and still it continues to get worse so i mean growing up in oregon we've seen it get worse and it's hard to feel like there's a whole lot of hope for it getting better when you've watched it come this far people are pretty pessimistic about climate change as well obviously and i think that the summer of 2020 and 2021 were a huge factor in that as well. I mean, in 2020, there was an entire week where we basically couldn't be outside because of wildfire smoke. In 2021, we hit 116 degrees. And it's also hard to think that even if Oregonians could work together, we can't solve this problem by ourselves. So no, uh, I'm not surprised, but it's saddening, I would say. On the other hand, it makes me a little bit hopeful because if these are things that we agree are a big problem and important and we need to solve them, then we have a better chance of working together to actually solve them. On that note, 1% of respondents in your poll said that increasing homelessness is not a problem to begin with. So I was like, like, where do these people live? (laughs) (laughs) Um, So I do. So Titus, Alex and I have actually never talked about this. So I, I am curious you know, you're a conservative person. Do you see, do you think that this is about who is leading the state? Do you think this is a democratic problem? My guess is that this would probably look similar in many states, if not most or all states. 
but what do you, Alex, when you look at those numbers and you see pessimism, like what is your interpretation? Yeah, no, I, I completely agree. And, and one of the things I actually found most interesting about this poll in specific is that there's, a, well, I love the idea of there's not a chance, which those, I guess, are just the ultra pessimist. Which for is like one polls, in five, one in five people who said, yeah, not I was going to say for most of the polls, the not a chance matches up with almost a good chance. Uh, there's, a, there's variance for sure in, in two of them, but it's like a lot of people just think we have no ability to solve issues anymore. Kind of, it looks even like no matter what the issue is, but yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't see this as particularly surprising. I imagined if you had a lot of red state voters, you would probably feel somewhat of the same thing, right? Like, why are these people not getting these issues done? I mean, for example, even if you're in a red state, total Republican control, but there's an overflow of hospitals or something like that, and people can't get hospital beds for cancer treatments, like, you're probably like, what is going on down there? Like, how are we not addressing these issues? We control everything, we should just be able to do this. So yeah, I mean, I even think that this is not just an organ problem or progressive or Republican conservative sort of backlash. I just think it's really a, a nationwide issue for sure. If that people just feel that there is, I don't even know if it's partisanship necessarily, but there's just like such a stall with being able to get things done that they just feel very pessimistic that government actually can deliver on their priorities. And I mean, I'd be curious of kind of the polling of what that looks like with state government. But I mean, I know that trust in national government has just evaporated over the past 20 years. So this wasn't particularly surprising to me, and it wouldn't be surprising if similar results happen in other states, too. I will say also something that did surprise me about these results is that usually younger people are more optimistic about most of the problems that we face, but that was not necessarily the case for a lot of these questions and particularly homelessness, younger people were much more likely to say that there's not a chance that we'll solve this problem than older people. Wow, that is so sad. Jeez. Uh, <laughs> not to be a downer. Okay. <laughs> you're like, wow, this is, this is a very sad Sunday that we're recording on. You know, the rain's coming back. Yeah, it's just, uh, the, the doom and gloom sets in. I did want to ask uh, about one poll in particular, which I found particularly surprising. This poll with this question that was asking, what impact did the Black Lives Matter protests have in your community? And I'm looking at the numbers right now, and it says 19% positive, 29% positive and negative, 22% negative, 22% no impact, and 9% don't know. I kind of want to just get rid of the no impact and don't know people and focus on those other three sections. I was particularly surprised to see that it was, again, not completely split down the middle, but like really split down the middle in terms of Oregon, which again, I would consider to be a pretty progressive state, you know, in terms of the, the impact of BLM is basically that like, well, there was definitely some good things and there was definitely some bad things about it. One, I want to ask for your sort of reaction on that. Like, were you guys surprised by the results. And then two, one thing I had mentioned at the beginning is like, I think that, you know, this, a poll like that could certainly upset certain people, part of the progressive establishment or whatever, in terms of the results that were delivered back. Have you all received any pushback with some of these polls? You don't have to name any specific names, but like from interest groups or from powerful individuals or whatever, because it, it does seem like at least, and again, I could look at polls that would maybe disrupt, you know, some things of conservative thinking and, and on the progressive side of things too. So one, I'd be curious of, just were you, you know, shocked kind of by these results? And then two, what's kind of been the feedback from what I would say maybe are some of these more polls with controversial results? Well, this is an instance where 
it's really important to look at the question, the actual wording of the question. And we're not trying to be tricky or pull the wool over anybody's eyes when we ask these questions. It's just really hard to get all of the information that you want to get into a question and or, and or not make a questionnaire too long because these people are being compensated, but it's they're not getting rich off of taking our monthly surveys. So we have to keep the surveys pretty short. So it's important to note that the question is what the impact was on your community and if it was positive or negative. And the other aspect that really informs these answers is we asked what are called open-ended questions hmm. and ask people to tell us in their own words why or how it had a positive or negative impact. And so many of the people that said that Black Lives Matter protests had a negative impact also were saying that it was negative because of the way that it emboldened and empowered people with like white nationalist ideas mm. and agendas. And mm. there were people that talked about feeling unsafe in public, like BIPOC community members that felt like they were unsafe in public because white people were more angry and were more likely to confront them in certain ways. And people also talked about sort of learning things about their friends and neighbors that you can't unlearn, like finding you know out that people have these biases. You, you know, you thought like they were your best friend, whoever, and then you find out that they have certain biases that you just really don't feel like you can sit with them the same way that you could before. For sure. So we we haven't actually gotten any pushback. Nobody has you know said anything at all about it. So yeah, it's it's important to read what people actually have to say about it. I could even try and find you a good quote. Yeah, here we go. So this is someone from Union County. Okay, rural. And yeah, and they said, I don't think they've had a dramatic impact in my community, but I think sh shaking people out of comfortable blindness to the inequities in our systems and government is good. Union County is pretty white, not accidentally either, if you look at the history, but I hope that it helps make the place slightly more tolerant and aware. So that's like an example of a positive impact. Let's see. It seems like unpacking an individual's reason for what they selected could vary white. Like, cause she said no impact, but seemed to favor the movement, for example. So that's really interesting. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, so I wanted really to, to look at people's reasons why in that I, case. I want to ask um, one more specific research question than a broader question for you. And this one will end on a, on a more hopeful, more optimistic <laughs> question. And this, I think, to me, truly was one of the most surprising pieces of research that I've seen published from you all. And it was the question was, which statement do Oregonians agree most with? Statement one is economic growth should be given priority, even if the environment suffers to some extent. That's part one. Statement B is protection of the environment should be given priority, even if at the, even at the risk of slowing economic growth. By an overwhelming margin, all of the four regions of the state that were polled, urban, suburban, rural to suburban, and rural, 
over 73% of or higher agreed with the statement that the environment should be given priority, which is like, you know, again, I think that's an, something that would be a historical Oregon value, like dating back decades, Oregon was perceived as an environmental state. But I'm actually shocked to see that in rural Oregon, 73% of respondents thought that the environment should trump economic growth to some extent. So I thought that was a, a hopeful and optimistic place of agreement across political and geographic boundaries. So any insight or, or comments on those results? The environment and natural beauty in Oregon is has been a consistent and strong shared value among Oregonians. I know that there have been some challenges to that, especially with impacts from the timber industry. But if you look at, for example, how um, rural communities see what has happened to like the Bend area and the way that that's been developed, the things that these, they see happening there, talking about trash in public parks and national parks and state parks and how they feel about that, it becomes less surprising that, you know, they want to protect the beautiful natural areas near them, even though it may have an economic impact. Love that. So final broad question, and then Alex will close. You've conducted a ton of research at OVBC. You're constantly churning out reports and memos and graphics. Is there one or two high-level pieces of data or trends that you think would be important for civic-minded, civically engaged Oregonians to know about that might help them operate better within the system? What, what sticks out to you? One of my favorite sections that we ever did was the greater Idaho movement. Mm. And we asked some questions about that and whether people in Oregon thought that counties should be allowed to join Idaho and whether they thought that would be a positive or a negative thing. And then also their thoughts about it. So another one of those open-ended questions where people could answer in their own words. And even though the majority of Oregonians didn't want to see these counties leave our state, the things that they had to say gave me a lot of hope for our state. People talked about understanding that these groups feel like they're not represented in the government in Oregon, that they understand that these people have different viewpoints and they may not agree with them, but that that's important for our state to have a diversity of opinions and ideas and viewpoints and also concern about what would happen to these counties if they did join Idaho. I mean, there's a lot of implications there. Idaho has not legalized marijuana and seems so far very opposed to doing so. And a lot of the rural counties that are in these, this group that would be joining Idaho have benefited from marijuana industry in their area. There's also the favorite Oregon issue of sales tax. Idaho has sales tax and Oregon doesn't. And then, you know, the recognition that uh, the metro area provides a lot of tax revenue that helps those communities. And what happens when those communities aren't the low end of tax revenue, they're middle to average what are they going to do to support their communities and their schools and government services that they need? Yeah, no, interesting. And one of my favorite things about how you guys do this too is it really shows that people are plugged into these issues, right? Like that's a pretty complex thing to be thinking about. Rather, if you're for 
breaking off half of Oregon or whatever into Idaho or not. So yeah, Armory, thanks again for, for coming on the pod. We're really happy to be able to have you on and we'll have to have you and Adam back together at some point to see how things are going when you become this massive polling conglomerate that I imagine <laughs> is happening in 2022. So hang on to your seats, Oregon. Last question before we let you go. If folks want to learn more about you or they want to follow your work, they want to learn more about Adam, they want to see you know these different polls that we just talked about today, where do they follow you? Where do they find you? Where should they go? Well, I also want to say thank you to you guys because I, I listened to the podcast and I've heard you guys use our data and so it's really exciting. So if people want to see our research or learn more about us, they can go to OregonVBC.org. Uh, if they'd like to join the panel and take the monthly surveys, they can go to bit.ly slash join dash OVBC and join the panel themselves and take the surveys. We just wrapped up our September survey, but we're about to start work on our October survey. So that'll be coming out soon. And we're on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook, but we're really small and I'm the only social media savvy person. So we're not super active. I will warn you. <laughs> awesome. Well, it was awesome speaking with you and thank you so much for coming on and sharing this insight. And I hope everyone joins the panel. Thank you guys. All right. Great. Well, thanks for listening, everyone. And uh, please remember to subscribe and give us a five-star rating if you can. And we'll catch you next week. Bye everyone. <laughs>